Jerusalem and came to Beth Path on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them and for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Before I start this morning, I just wanted to mention to the kids that in lieu of uh, Bible bingo this morning, I'm going to be asking you to pick out a key word that the crowd declares as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and also to remember its meaning. And so if you come to me after service and you tell me that word and its meaning, you can get help from your parents. Um, uh, I'll try to find that box back there so you can get a prize. The date was January 20th, 1977. Jimmy Carter had just been inaugurated President of the United States and he and his family entered the presidential limousine to escape the cold 28 degrees. They began driving along the parade route that would take them to the White House when President Carter decided to act upon an impulse of innovation and have the limousine come to a stop. Exiting the vehicle, he and his family proceeded to walk a mile along the parade route, offering some personal interaction with the crowds of people lined up along the route to usher him into his presidency. In doing this, he inaugurated a tradition that has continued into the present. Since Jimmy Carter, every president has taken on the January cold and walked part of the parade route when it's been able to be held. Why has this tradition been embraced? Well, I think it is because every new president doesn't want to appear as though he thinks he's better than the common person. 
aloof. It's a symbolic act of humility, indicating that the president finds common cause with the general public. This kind of communication of his values and priorities would be lost if he hid within the armored limo. Incredibly, something as simple as taking a walk manages to speak volumes and sets the tone for a presidency. We see a similar scene playing out here in Matthew 21, but with much greater significance for Israel and for all of humanity. So looking first at verses 1 through 5. I'll go back to here. 1 through 7, rather. You recall that Jesus had been in, in Jericho with his disciples, and as they were leaving Jericho, they came across two blind men who were declaring that Jesus was the son of David and calling upon him as the son of David to have mercy upon them. And he healed them both, gave them their sight. So Jericho is not that far out from... Make sure the PowerPoint's selected. I'm trying... There we go. Um, Jericho's not that far out from Jerusalem. Um, It's about... 21 miles out, and so what we have here in these verses is them covering that distance and approaching the Mount of Olives. Um, now we're not certain that um, that they necessarily covered all 21 miles in one day, but I mean it's it's possible. Um, when they get to the Mount of Olives, they're about two miles out of town, um, away from Jerusalem. And you can kind of see the proximity here. You've got the Temple Mount over here, the whole city of Jerusalem. You've got the Mount of Olives. And if you're looking for the Mount of Olives, you can see that's, the, that's not the Temple. The Temple's destroyed. That's the, rock of the, Dome, the Dome of the Rock. That's uh, a Muslim mosque. Um, So, but it's really close. Curiously, Jesus and his disciples don't just keep walking into Jerusalem. Isn't it kind of funny that they get so close and then all of a sudden Jesus decides, no, it would be good right about now, a donkey. The disciples are probably thinking, that would have been good 21 miles ago. (laughs) Why the donkey now? Well, we're going to learn why the donkey now as we go along. But in any case, Jesus sends two of his disciples out to get a donkey. And it's Colt. Um, now what he says is that they're going to find this donkey and Colt tied up. And if the people ask him, what are you doing with them? They're to say simply that the Lord's that the Lord needs them. And if you go to the Gospel of Mark and Luke, you actually see that the people who, who presumably own the donkeys um, do ask the disciples, what, what in the world are you doing? Um, but they, they just tell them what Jesus 
um, told them to say, which is that the Lord needs them. Now, it's kind of interesting to kind of wonder about why that was a sufficient response. Kind of the kid in me, like, imagines, like, is this like a Star Wars kind of trick? Like, you will give us the donkeys. Um, uh, I don't think that's probably what's going on, but it's kind of funny to imagine that. Um, it may be that Jesus had already kind of prearranged this um, with these people. Um, perhaps he had sent word along, like, hey, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to have need of, of your donkey. Um, it could be that just simply by uh, indicating that this was for the Lord's service, um, that the Holy Spirit had worked upon the hearts of these people, that they were persuaded to let them have use of their donkeys. In any case, um, they do let them have them. And, uh, and so it's at this point, as we are looking at our text here in Matthew, and in comparison with Mark, Luke, and John, that we come against an interesting difference. Um, Matthew mentions two donkeys. You got a full-grown donkey, the mother donkey, and you've got its baby donkey, colt. Now, when you look at the other Gospels, they don't make mention of two donkeys. They only mention one donkey. They, me- they mention the colt. Um, and so, kind of similar to some of the differences that we've seen previously between Matthew and the other Gospels when he mentions two people and the others mention one, we kind of wonder, okay, what's going on here? The important thing, I think, to remember as we're kind of considering these differences is, again, the Gospels aren't providing for us a video recording version, video recorded version of history where they're capturing all the details. That's how we would write a history today, where we'd put down every single little detail. Um, That's not what ancient texts do. They prioritize some details and they leave some out, and that's totally legitimate. Um, Just because you leave out certain details doesn't mean um, that your account is inaccurate. It just means that it doesn't cover all of the details. Um, So with that in mind then, if we understand, okay, this isn't necessarily problematic that the others don't mention the second donkey, and only Matthew does, we would have to ask then, why is it that Matthew mentions both? Well, if you look closely at these verses, you'll notice that in Luke and in Mark, it mentions that this colt had never been ridden before. So it's a real rookie. It's not used to having somebody sit on it. Um, Now, we've just had school start up. And any of you who are parents, um, usually when it's your kid's first day of school, like literal first day of school, you know, they're going into kindergarten, the kid's pretty nervous. kid might be tears, not wanting to leave mommy and daddy. And so you go with them, help them get through the door and move on into their education. So if we kind of think about this ride that 
Jesus is going to take on this young, young donkey as its kind of first day of kindergarten, we can understand why it might be useful to bring along this colt's mother. It helped reassure it, comfort it, especially because we know that Jesus is going to be met by a big crowd. There'd be a lot for a donkey that's never been ridden before. Now, the other thing, too, that we notice here, you look at what John has to say. He says, he, he kind of alludes to the passage in Zechariah that we are going to look more closely at, which says, see, your king is co- coming, seated on donkey's colt. Now, even in the giving of that prophecy, it kind of does have in view the mother of this don- donkey. Even though it's not the one that's going to be ridden, it still has it in view. And so it makes sense that in Jesus, in getting this donkey, that the mother of this young donkey would also be in the scene as well, and is brought along in order that the journey would go smoothly. Now there's one last thing here that um, I think would be helped with some clarification. You look at verse 7 in Matthew. It says, They brought the donkey and colt, and place their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Now, if you look at those words closely, it's kind of, it can be a little bit difficult to try to piece together a picture of what exactly is going on here. Is Jesus sitting on both donkeys at the same time, kind of like a stuntman? You can imagine some of the kids in my youth group trying to <laughs> do something like that. Um, but not Jesus. I don't picture Jesus doing that. So, so what's actually happening here? Well, I think there's a couple of possibilities. There's one, perhaps Jesus sat on both donkeys just at different times. Perhaps the young donkey wouldn't have been able to even cover the two miles into Jerusalem, and so he rode part of the way on the mother and part of the way on the young donkey. Um, the other is just that he just sat on, they, they just put cloaks on both donkeys, but Jesus only sat on the young donkey. Now, the phrase, the, the key word that I think is kind of in play here in terms of kind of clarifying on our, on our understanding is this idea of, is, is this one where it says that um, they place their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on which kind of gives you this picture of him sitting on both. But if you look at the New American Standard um, version, um, they translate it slightly different that I think probably better captures the meaning here, which is the disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their cloaks on them, and he sat on the cloaks. So it's the idea that he's not sitting on both donkeys at the same time. He's sitting on the cloaks that they, they put on the donkeys. Um, so we, getting back to kind of the original question, why is Jesus going through all this trouble of getting the donkeys two miles out of Jerusalem? Well, the reason why Jesus is troubling himself in getting these donkeys is that they are iconic markers of the identity that Jesus is claiming for himself. Um, And you have kind of two different instances in the Old Testament that kind of anticipate what Jesus is doing here. 
The first is, and it's not explicitly referenced here in this passage, but um, it ties into the image, is in Genesis 49, 10 through 11. Um, jo- uh, Jacob is blessing all 12 of his sons, and when he comes to Judah, he says this. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Now David was of the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is in the line of David. And so this promise that is being given to Judah carries forward to all of his descendants. And when we look at Jesus, it's pretty apparent how he is meeting the expectations of this prophecy. And it's kind of crazy to think because this was given like 2,000 years before. And sometimes we kind of just mash all the ancient times together, but we can kind of lose a sense of time, I think, to think about, like, what if a prophecy was given 2,000 years ago, basically at the time of Jesus, and then it was fulfilled in our own day? Well, we're kind of expecting that eventually with the return of Christ. But that's the kind of distance that's being covered. A prophecy was given 2,000 years before, and now you have Jesus. He has, he has these two donkeys. And what's more, you even have kind of anticipation of his crucifixion and the shedding of his blood where it talks about how he's going to wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Now there is an explicit connection to the Old Testament here by the passage that is referenced from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9, 9-10 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we see that this is a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy given, uh, kind of laying out a vision of what the promised king is going to bring with him, which is peace. He's going to bring peace, riding in on a donkey. Now, there is something that is particularly humble about a donkey. It's not a necessarily very gallant kind of creature. Um, But at the same time, it's not totally unprecedented for kings to ride donkeys. Um, When we look at in 1 Kings 1, verses 33 through 35, um, we see King David instructing Bathsheba to uh, have Solomon get on his mule. Now, there's something symbolic there, riding David's mule, but the fact that David rode a mule, which is basically a breed of donkey, um, it's not a, not a white horse, certainly, but still considered to be befitting of a king. Now, particularly when we think about the image of this donkey and Jesus riding in on a donkey, what it's representing is that he is a king who has everything in hand. 
He has no need of the war horse. And this makes sense given with what Zechariah is saying, that this is a king that's going to be bringing peace. And so if you're kind of considering the differences between the donkey or um, a horse that's bred for battle, I think you can kind of think of it as um, kind of comparing, like, so Jesus is maybe riding in on, like, a nice vehicle. This is an older vehicle, but it's a nice vehicle, respectable vehicle. It's like the difference between riding in on this versus riding in on, like, a tank. So the people really wanted Jesus to ride in on a tank. But he's riding in on this. Now, in riding in on this, of course, there is those messianic implications there because of what the prophets have said. And yet, there's something about this that indicates that the people's expectations of this aren't entirely accurate or incorrect. Recall that Jesus has been working to reframe his disciples of expectations of how his ministry is going to culminate. In the last chapter, in chapter 20, he talked about, he told them, like, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. I'm also going to be resurrected, but I'm going to die there. I'm going to be judged by the Jews and the Gentiles and be put to death, crucified. And what, and what he's trying to do um, in instructing his disciples is getting them to see how the greatness of God's kingdom doesn't look like the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire depends on their version of the tanks. That's, that's greatness to them. God's greatness looks different. And when we look to the Gospel of John, we see Jesus kind of explicitly um, stating how different his kingdom is from the kingdom of, of kingdoms of this world. In John 3.17, after giving that famous word in John 3.16 about believing in him and receiving eternal life, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So he's not coming to blow everybody up. <laughs> he's coming to save people. In John 18.36, when he's being um, confronted by Pilate, questioned by him, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus, again and again and again, is trying to make it clear, I'm different. This kingdom is different. It's not that it isn't a kingdom. It is a true and real kingdom. It's more real than the kingdoms of this world. But it doesn't operate according to the ways of this world. And I think sometimes we can we can fall into the trap of the people of that time and that when Jesus' kingdom doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world then we're kind of like, okay, it's a kingdom. As though it's not really real. It is real. And it's of eternal consequence. And it's why the church has been given rule and judgment within its own sphere because it's of eternal consequence. And admonishing people 
to repentance so that they might enter into kingdoms into the kingdom of God and also correcting people when they start going astray there's a real authority behind that when the church speaks so Jesus has been trying to reframe the expectations of the people and kind of trying to keep their enthusiasm in check for a long time. But even while knowing they didn't have a clear understanding of his mission as Messiah, he now does make this move which kind of really stokes the flames of expectations. They were looking for an armed revolution, but Jesus wasn't bringing that. He was riding in on a donkey, not a war horse. But this was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, and the people could see this, even if they misunderstood its implications. But Jesus' time is coming. At this point, he's only a week away from his crucifixion. And in the Gospel accounts, like time slows down. For a while now, we've kind of been covering broad swaths of time in Jesus' ministry, and now we're just down to a week. But it's like an hour-by-hour kind of account, almost. Um, And so, with his crucifixion only a week away now, he no longer pours cold water on their enthusiasm. So we look at verses 8 through 11. You have the response from the people. Um... Jesus is coming down the road on this, don- on, on the, on this donkey and uh, he begins to receive royal treatment from the people. They start waving palm branches. They throw cloaks down on the ground to kind of lay out a red carpet. And this actually isn't unprecedented. If you go into the Old Testament, 2 Kings 9.13, um, when Jehu became king of Israel after overthrowing Um, Ahab and Jezebel, it says they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. And then he overthrew um, Ahab and Jezebel. But kind of common treatment here. And the palm branches that they're waving, um, they're not just kind of useful streamers or whatever. There's actually even um, something kind of patriotic about that because the palm branch is a national symbol of Israel, and so there's all kinds of messianic implications here where they're welcoming Jesus as king. They're expecting that he's going to be the one that's going to finally deliver Israel, not just in the short term, but ultimately bringing all of God's promises to pass. Now, we heard. Uh, in the, in the last chapter, the blind men appealed to Jesus as the son of David. And here we see the crowds give him the same recognition. They, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, does anyone here know what the word Hosanna means? That's all right. I didn't, honestly, before I studied this chapter, I didn't have it. I didn't really know what it meant either. Um... The word Hosanna means save us. Save us. So they're basically saying, save us, son of David. Now, of course, that meaning of what does it mean for them to be saved 
is where kind of the point of confusion is because they're expecting deliverance from the Romans. Jesus says, that's not your biggest problem. Um, but the point is, is that they're recognizing Jesus for who he truly is, that he is the M Messiah. And the rejoicing that we have recorded here is similar to what's recorded in Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all drawing from these um, psalms called the Hallel Psalms, um, which are found uh, in Psalm 118 and some of the chapters previous to that. And I wanted to read a portion of it to you just so you could kind of get a sense of everything that they're basically saying about Jesus and welcoming him with these words of praise. Look at Psalm 118, 19-29. It says, Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the crowd's not anticipating this, but we know that this is anticipating Jesus' rejection on the cross. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Isn't it such a beautiful psalm of God's promise of salvation to his people? And it's astounding how Jesus fulfills its import. Now, Jesus' approach to Jerusalem with all this fanfare produces a real commotion in Jerusalem. And when the people are asking, you know, basically who this guy is, the crowds tell them, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth and Galilee. Now this is kind of interesting because it seems like they are indicating that he's more than just a mere prophet by calling him the son of David and all of this. This isn't the first time that people have kind of just grabbed onto that explanation for who Jesus is in Luke 7.16. Um, when Jesus raised a dead man um, back to life, they say in response, a great prophet has appeared among us. Um, and John 16, after the people see a sign, they say that surely this is the prophet who is, who is promised to come into the world. And that's referring to uh, back to Deuteronomy 18, in which Moses said that there was going to be a prophet that was to come after him and that everyone was basically supposed to listen to him. And of course, this brings us back to Matthew 16, in which Jesus asked the critical question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? All the other people were figuring that maybe he was a prophet, or 
Jeremiah or Elijah or John the Baptist raised back to, from the dead. But Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So, it's kind of safe to say, I think, that the people have this expectation of Jesus to do something, but they're still trying to put the puzzle together. It's true that Jesus is a prophet, but he's more than a mere prophet. And, of course, it's possible for a person to be many things. I am a student. I'm taking a class this fall. But I'm also a pastor. A woman couldn't be an accountant and also a mother. And when we look at Jesus, we see that he is a prophet. He is a teacher. He is the Messiah, the Savior. He is the very Son of God. So if you take a close look at these 11 verses, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say much. It's something that we can easily miss, but he doesn't have really much to say here. Matthew only records his command to get the donkeys. And yet, clearly, he is saying a whole lot here. His actions are speaking volumes. This is why we must pay attention to not only what Jesus says, but also to what he does. What Jesus does is step out onto the stage. The crowds have been clamoring for him, desperately hoping he would be the promised Messiah. And now he steps into Zechariah's prophecy, entering into Jerusalem on a young donkey. He was fulfilling expectations, even while he was confounding popular expectations of a warrior Messiah. The crowds were ecstatic, but he would disappoint them. He wasn't coming to bring war to the Romans. He had much more important business than that. Rome, while evil, was no real obstacle. There's a different divide that must be overcome. The real divide between God and the world was human sin and is human sin. We don't need another empire from this world. We need a kingdom from outside this world, a peace that no war horse can bring. I think there is a warning for us here when we take in the big picture of what is going to happen to Jesus. Enthusiasm alone for Jesus is not a good measure of faithfulness to Jesus. Just being excited about him doesn't say much. Some of the people now celebrating Jesus will soon be calling for him to be crucified. It's easy for us to get excited about Jesus when we make him the donkey for our own ideas and wishes when we make him the beast of burden for our own agendas. But what will you do when he says, my way leads to a cross? 
Maybe you too would say, let him have it. I'm not going there. He brings salvation, but he hasn't come to give us what we want. He has come to save us from ourselves. Basically, we don't know what we want. We don't know what's good for ourselves. He goes to the cross because we're going to hell. And He doesn't want us to go there. If we'll surrender our way and entrust ourselves to Him, we won't go there. We will live to welcome the new age of God's kingdom with our own cries of praise. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you for your faithfulness to your word, to your promises. That thousands of years ago you indicated that you would bring salvation to Israel and in fact to the whole world, Father. And that you are faithful to that promise by sending your Son for us. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son not to condemn us, but to save us. We thank you, Father, that your kingdom is so much better than the kingdoms of this world. And that while the empires may crumble, your kingdom will stand forever and ever. Father, we pray this morning that we would not be fickle like this crowd is going to be proven to be by the end of this week in Jerusalem. That, Father, that we wouldn't follow Jesus just because it's convenient for us and that He furthers our own goals. But that, Father, that we would surrender our own will in order to follow after Christ, desiring what He desires, what You desire, and what is in keeping with the kingdom. Father, give us, though, the excitement of that crowd and proclaiming Your praise that You have sent Christ for our salvation and that he has saved us as he proved on the cross and through his resurrection. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.